Well, good morning. It is good to see you. I love it when the, uh, as you well know already, I love it when the sun is shining rather than the clouds, uh, all hazy. And so it's great to see you this morning. It's great to uh, have the sun out a little bit. I was in Atlanta a few days uh, this past week for BMW board meetings. And would you know it that they welcomed me with clouds and cold? It was 11 degrees in Atlanta. I thought, I'll stay at home for this. <laughs> so it is good to be back home. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as we continue in our study of this incredible book. And we've arrived at the place in the book that you well know. And if you've studied 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, this actually becomes a major theme. It is a major theme in 1 Thessalonians. But an even greater theme in 2 Thessalonians as Paul will write again to explain any confusion that may have come from the section of Scripture we're about to study. And so it is an important study for us as we begin to understand the coming day of the Lord. And as we do so, we're going to get into just the first three verses of chapter 5, but I want you to understand that there's a greater context here. And it is that greater context that you need to study as we will get into it over the next three weeks, Lord willing, uh, we will study it over the next three weeks. And as we do so, you're going to get the broader picture. But it would be wise for you to, uh, in advance, be studying through some of these texts and looking ahead for them and reading them and preparing for each message each week, understanding the bigger picture than what we have in just the first three verses that we'll study this morning. As we do so, you know and if you've spent any time studying or looking into end times theology, especially in the last 20 years especially, uh, you'll know that end times theology has been met with sarcasm and ridicule from those outside uh, and, frankly, from those inside the church. There are those in the realms of theological understanding and within Christendom who would say that the end times theology is too difficult, it's too divisive. And so we're not going to study it. But Scripture spends a significant portion on issues of prophecy, both that has been fulfilled for us today and is yet to be fulfilled for us today. And Scripture is very clear. And so it is wise for us to not let our theological constructs define what the Scripture says, but allow the Scriptures to speak for themselves. And allowing the Scriptures to speak for themselves, while there are areas we simply do not understand because the Lord intended it to be that way, there is a lot that we can understand, and that's where, we're going to, where we want to dwell this morning. Much of the reason for the sarcasm and ridicule, frankly, though, is earned because uh, there is a scandalous and sensational predictions and statements that have been made over the number of recent years. And you've seen them in the headlines, and I picked an early one to pick up on. There was an article published in the Washington Post on September 9th 1989, so we're going way back, uh, September 9th, 1989, and the article writes this, when September 1st, 1989 came and went, Edgar Wisnat was still here. You see the sarcasm dripping out of that phrase. So were millions of others who expected to be taken into heaven during the rapture they believed was prophesied in the book of Revelation. The rapture that Wisnat said would happen September 1st, Wisnat, a retired NASA engineer, originally predicted that the rapture would take place on September 13, 1988. A book he wrote on the subject titled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988 raised $200,000 in profits for the publisher, the World Bible Society in Nashville. About 4.3 million copies of the book were distributed, including more than a million that were given away. When last year's date came and went, Wisnat recalculated and came up with a new date. He and the publisher issued a new work on the subject, but this time they hedged their bets, titling the pamphlet The Final Shout or Rapture Report, 1988, 1990, 1991, 1992, 1993. When this year's prediction also, produ uh, when this year's prediction also proved wrong, Wisnat's reaction was, quote, I guess God doesn't always do things the way man thinks he will, end quote. But that's probably the most truthful thing you wrote the whole time. In a television, rather in a telephone interview, 
from his home outside Little Rock, Arkansas, the author told Ray Waddle of the Nashville Tennessean that, quote, there's evidence all around, but old Ed Wisnat just can't name it. My job is done. The end is near. I had to get the message out. Like Paul Revere, I did the job I was supposed to do, end quote. It is this sensationalistic and scandalistic process of theological riches that we have seen the decline of pre-tribulational, premillennial rapture. And it is in this context that we began to see a series of younger people coming up in the church who began to look at these scandals and say, it didn't happen, and it's not going to happen, because you don't know when it's going to happen. And there began to be some confusion and some debates that began to rage in the church, in the modern society at least, on this issue. And so it's very vitally important that you and I cut through all of the fog and we understand what Scripture says. And so that is our goal this morning as we study the coming day of the Lord. And we want to understand the proper response to the coming day of the Lord. And that is to be prepared. It's not to be as a Paul Revere writing out and saying the British are coming. It's not to be as Chicken Little who is saying the sky is falling. But it is to be those who are prepared. And in our preparation, as we studied, as we read rather this morning in 2 Peter, we are to be faithful evangelists. Because as the Lord tarries, it is his patience that is on display and his loving kindness to those who are lost, that everyone may come to know Christ as Savior. And so with that context, we begin this morning in a word of prayer, looking forward to digging into this very rich, very encouraging, very hopeful passage of Scripture that is before us. Let us pray. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for the opportunity that we have to spend time in your word today. And it is in a day in which there are so many things that the world says is going to cause the end of all societies. Lord, the list that Mike read a few moments ago is not new to us in any way. And despite some of the nervous laughter about the robots and others, we recognize that these are the very real thoughts that people have. There's very real danger in their minds that this world will end by rising temperatures. But Lord, we know that you have promised to sustain and maintain the world until your will has been complete. And then it will indeed be with rising temperatures that you destroy this earth and the creation of the new. So Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding hearts today as we dig into your word, hearts that are willing to listen to adhere to your word. Lord, I pray that your word would penetrate our hearts, that we would be those who would not only listen, but then obey as we've studied in recent weeks. That your name would be glorified in all that we do and say in response. Because as we study this text, we recognize that there is an immediate response that must be a part of our action. So we ask that your name would be glorified in the way we respond as well. Lord, I pray that you'd give me the words to say that they would be from your spirit, that your spirit would use them for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we begin, we recognize that we are starting in chapter 5, and our chapter divisions that exist here are helpful all the time in helping us memorize to find places in Scripture, but it does come in the middle of some context. And those chapter divisions were not there. Paul did not start by saying, at the end of chapter 4, therefore encourage one another with these words, chapter 5, now concerning the times. No, he wrote, therefore encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. He breathes, yes. There's a paragraph break, yes. But the chapter divisions kind of make it seem as if one is disconnected somewhat from the other. And that is not the case. They are flowing right into the other. Chapter 4 flows right into chapter 5, and this becomes very important as we understand the day of the Lord. Now this phrase that Paul gives, he is saying to the believers at Thessalonica, you know it. You already know about the day of the Lord. You have no reason for anybody to have anything to write to you about it because you already know. 
But it will be this issue that Paul will pick up in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and continue to add to it because it will be here that the Judaizers and those false teachers will begin to try to pull the church away from a faithful understanding of what the day of the Lord is. And when will it happen? And so there's some debate, there's some consternation that exists in this church at Thessalonica, and we've already seen it to some extent. We recognize that the reason for chapter 4 was that there are those who are dying in Thessalonica, not dying because of their sin, but because they live in a sin-stained world. And as they're dying, as they're passing away, just like all of us will, except for the rapture of Christ, then as they're dying, the church is saying, but they were so anticipating. They were waiting for the coming of the Lord. Are they going to miss it? If I die, am I going to miss it? And chapter 4 is written that they would be confident to encourage one another that those who pass away before the return of the Lord will not miss anything. And then Paul goes on. He says, but you already know about the day of the Lord. Just before we took a break for the Christmas season, we had finished chapter 4, and so it's important for us to go back a little bit because that's been a number of weeks ago. It's important for us to go back a little bit and just kind of pick it back up. Let's go back to verse 13 of chapter 4. The scripture says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The next event. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. You have no need. Verse 2, for you, of chapter 5, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Chapter 4 is a tremendously important passage for the believer, and in it we find comfort to encourage one another, knowing that Christ will return for the church to meet those who are of the church in the air, and those uh, those who have passed away will be joined with those who are yet alive to meet Christ there. Since that break, it's easy for us to, the break of Christmas, it's easy for us to be disjointed into chapter 5, but I'm belaboring this point, hoping that you understand that there is no time between chapter 4 and chapter 5. The indication of the text would be after chapter 4 ends, the rapture of the church has commenced and has taken place at the same time. Simultaneously, the events of chapter 5 begin to unfold. Now, could there be a time frame in here? Perhaps, but it would be very, very short. We're not told, other than the text that we find here, and it's contextual, that after the events of chapter 4, the events of chapter 5 will begin to take place. Paul had already provided instruction on the times and the seasons, and there was nothing more that he could provide for their understanding. Paul had already spoken on this issue. The Thessalonians already knew what Paul meant by times and seasons, but perhaps we don't. So what is meant by times and seasons? This is a phrase that is often used in God's determination of the timeline of human events. It is used in three well-known passages. We're going to look at all three of them. We're starting back. There's two of them in the Old Testament, one in the New. Let's go back to the Old Testament and we'll go to Ecclesiastes is the first one. And so if you will, take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where Solomon uses the same phrase. And it helps our understanding because Paul intends it the same way Solomon does. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And I'm specifically just going to read through uh, these very quickly and give very little comment. Scripture says, For Everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to heal and a time 
or rather a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together and a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose and a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Solomon's intentions the understanding is that there is a dedicated time for each of these activities and more. But let's add to it because Solomon is speaking in this way. Let's turn over to Daniel and we'll see the same phrase in Daniel chapter 2. So if you'll turn briefly over to Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, the scripture there says this, and that Daniel is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel gives this prophetic statement that is to be fulfilled And verse 21, he gives us understanding. He says he changes times, that is the Lord, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. In other words, what Daniel is proclaiming and what Solomon was proclaiming in Ecclesiastes is that it is the Lord who declares and establishes and sets up both times and seasons. These are the Lord's things. This is what the Lord does in times and seasons. Now, let's turn over to Acts, moving to the New Testament, Acts chapter 1. And we see this phrase again in a very familiar text. You're most likely more familiar with verse 8. But let's look at verse 7 of Acts chapter 1, where the Scripture says this. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed in His own authority. That brief run through the pages of Scripture to understand times and seasons should help you understand that the book, 1988, and the subsequent pamphlet, 1989, and the following years, should never have been written. Why? Because you and I are not given, or not given the opportunity or the permission to be that scandalous. Because it is God who defines times and seasons. It is the Lord who reveals those. The disciples had asked in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, they had asked about the coming of the Lord. They had asked specifically about the coming of the kingdom. Because remember, Jesus had started his ministry proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then in Matthew chapter 11 and into Matthew chapter 12, there's a significant change. And between those texts, the Leaders of Israel had proclaimed the works of Christ to be of Beelzebub. And when that had taken place, the message was no longer clear. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now Jesus began to teach in parables. And he began to conceal the meaning of those parables, except by specific and strategic explanation to his disciples and close followers. So when the disciples come to the end of the life of Christ, they say, now you've been crucified, you've been risen again, now when is the kingdom? Wouldn't that be your question? You've gone through all of this. You're like, you taught in parables, Jesus, but now you have risen again. You've taken care of the sin issue. When will you bring about the kingdom? When will you take care of all the rest of this mess? And Jesus says to them, the times and the seasons are the Father's to know, not yours. Times, as we begin to understand this, Times refers to a measurement of passing moments. Seasons refers to the character of the passing times. So they're certainly related, as they've obviously been used together, those four times, both here in 1 Thessalonians and Ecclesiastes, Daniel, and Acts. For the reader, there was nothing more for Paul to add to the definition of or the timing of the times and the seasons. He could not because it continued to be a mystery. And it still remains that today. If someone were to say, I know when Christ will return, I know when the day of the Lord will begin, I will look at them and say, there is no way. Can we see evidences that would indicate that soon Christ will return? That should receive a hearty amen. Because we do see things continually increasing in their wickedness, and as we see those things, we say, certainly Christ will return at any moment. 
And so let us not set aside a day in September in 1988 and say that this is the day Christ is going to return. Instead, let's live as if Christ can return right now. That's what Paul is indicating in the text. Regarding the seasons, they already knew what could be known. God has determined when it will be. Regarding the time, they did not know. Paul did not know. We just know that it's at any time. In recent history, there has been this significant amount of sensationalism concerning the end times and concerning specifically this moment and the return of Christ for the day of the Lord. And there's been some misunderstanding of the day of the Lord versus the kingdom and a misunderstanding of the rapture, especially when it relates to pre-tribulational rapture. For some, it has caused them to stop studying this most important doctrine. In fact, they will say, well, that's a, a second-layer theology. It's a second-tier theology. It's not the same as salvation, and I would certainly agree. It's not the same as salvation. You can be saved and still hold a poor view of eschatology, of end-times theology. But it is nonetheless an important doctrine. Because while there are those who are casting it aside and saying... There's nothing here because it's all sensationalist. There's a sensationalist for just about every one of them. One who is sensationalizing every statement and saying, ah, it is here. We're reading between the lines and we're seeing the numbers and we're doing the math and we've come up with this date. Beloved, let us not be deceived by either one of them. The faithful biblicist that we should be would study these great truths in their historical grammatical context and let scriptures speak for itself, because in doing so, it reminds you and I that we have a task to do, and it's not just seat warmers. We have a task to do that is holy living until Christ returns in the rapture for his church, and that includes the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who do not know, the edification and the building up of the saints who do know, and the discipleship of those who are growing in their knowledge. All of that is encapsulated in this idea that you and I are to be living holy, expectant lives and Christ could return before you have the opportunity to set it all into action. If you knew that he was going to return at any moment, how would that change what you do? And that is indeed what Paul says. Paul says you already know. Paul has revealed what he already knows. And now he speaks to the unannounced arrival. This is a major theme that Paul is going to speak several times through chapter 5. He's going to speak it more in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, but here in chapter 5, he's going to highlight it. Paul did not have anything to add. He couldn't say, on this date, at this moment, and if you would have known anybody to do so, it would have been the Apostle Paul, or perhaps the Apostle John. Well, this is the day. 2,000 years in advance, Christ is going to return, so you can kind of goof off until then. No, we don't have any of that in Scripture. Paul did not have anything more to add regarding the times and the seasons. But by way of reminder, he says that the day of the Lord will come without warning. Notice what he again says in verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Its arrival will be as expected as the arrival of the thief. This phrase. And similar phrases are used in Revelation chapter 16, 2 Peter chapter 3, which we read earlier this morning, Matthew chapter 24, and here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In each of them, it refers to the unexpected arrival of end times events. And here, it refers to the sudden arrival of the tribulation period, which follows evidently immediately or simultaneously with the rapture of the church. The context would, would seem to indicate that as the church is raptured and that those who are dead in Christ will rise first and those who are alive in Christ will rise to meet them in the air, at the same moment, the day of the Lord begins to take place. That's at least the way Paul is writing this. This is the grammatical construction of what Paul is writing. And he reminds us in chapter 5, verse 3, he says these words, "...while people are saying there is peace and security..." Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. We have the arrival of the day of the Lord. It's unannounced. 
It's as expected as a thief. We're going to dig into this over the next few moments together and again in the weeks to come. It's as unexpected as a thief. And truly, as unexpected as it is, it will arrive and it will be sudden. It won't be gradual. It won't be an escalation of events. It will not be, and this is important, especially in our context, culturally, in our area, it will not be some group of people establishing some sort of utopia period. It will be in a day when the world says, we don't need the Lord. Look at what we have done. But do we not live in that world today? We've lived in that world since the time of Paul. You had the Roman emperors set up saying, look at what I have done. I must be God. We still have the same things happening today. The beginning of the day of the Lord will come suddenly and without advanced warning, except you've already received the warning. It's going to happen. We just don't know when. Despite the confusion that some theologians have over this passage and others, such as Revelation 20, this is written as fact. You may say it this way. This, that Paul has just written in the first three verses, is future history. It will indeed take place. It is going to happen. So now we need to step back a little bit. We understand what Paul is saying. We're kind of laying the foundation because Paul is going to get to what do we do about this. But before we get to what do we do about this, we need to understand what is the day of the Lord. And we have some significant and important context for this. When we understand the day of the Lord, we recognize that we can go back to the Old Testament prophets. This is not something new. This is not a New Testament theology. This is a theology that we find woven through the pages of Scripture all the way from the prophets before. Before we conclude this morning, we will be returning to what Paul speaks about this issue, but for now, we're going to confront the confusion that might exist regarding the day of the Lord. Because it is out there, it is prevalent, in fact, it is the mainstream evangelicalism today. We are bucking the trends of mainstream evangelicalism. Because mainstream evangelicalism has pushed a theology, and then they've gotten to this point where their theology can't push through a literal understanding of Scripture, and so they they say, our theology dictates that this is all allegorical. That this is not the actual literal way that it's going to take place. But Scripture says, not just in the New Testament, not just in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, not just Revelation chapter 12, but all the way through its pages, that this will happen literally. So we want to understand it literally in its grammatical, historical context. So in doing so, we recognize that we're going to have to confront some confusion. There are some details, and I'm I don't want us to back away from this, and you should not be as you're reaching out to your neighbors, your friends, maybe for the sake of Christ, maybe someone who has been captured by the sensationalistic elements that we find in our world, or maybe someone who has discounted end times theology simply because of the sensationalists. Let us be those who understand the truth. And to do that, we're going to have to say that there are some details about the future that you and I do not know. Let us not be sensational about them. Let us not write books entitled 2025. (laughs) We do know that the Lord will return in the air for his church. We do not know when. We do know that the day of the Lord will begin immediately thereafter or soon thereafter, the rapture of the church. And we see that taught throughout the pages of Scripture. So we're going to spend some time now back between the Old and the New Testament and some books perhaps you haven't spent a lot of time in recently. Let's go back to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is an important end times book for you and I. Zephaniah chapter 1. Turn there if you will. We're going to be back there in Zephaniah at least twice this morning. Zephaniah chapter 1 beginning in verse 14. The scripture there says this, the great day of the Lord is near. Near the Near and hastening fast, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. The day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, 
a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. 17, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. Because they have sinned against the Lord, their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them from the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now just reading that, would you say, ah, that took place in AD 70 when Israel was attacked by Rome. Doesn't Jerusalem, all of Israel, is one small portion of all of the earth. This is a a passage that is describing a day, a day of the Lord that is a terrible day, a day of wrath filled with trumpet blasts and the judgment of God. This day, while there have been precursor days to it, has not happened yet. While we do look at AD 70 and see the grotesque nature of what took place, we would say that is only a precursor to what God will do in fulfillment of Zephaniah chapter 1. Keep your finger in Zephaniah and turn back to Isaiah. Because Isaiah also speaks to these issues. Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 11. Isaiah 13, beginning in verse 9, the scripture says in verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the wicked for its evil and the wicked, or punish the world rather for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp uh, of the arrogance and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Same question as I asked of Isaiah when you take this literally, has this event taken place? Has the sun and the stars been darkened? They have not, not in this way. And when we understand this in the grand scope of Revelation, we understand all of the details that will take place through Revelation when there will be a third. When we understand the destruction that will take place as the wrath of God is poured out upon humanity. Isaiah confirms What is revealed by the prophet Zephaniah, this time will be a period of the wrath of God and the judgment of God against the world. And for the believer at this moment, you and I who see all of the wickedness and we see all of the devastation and we see all of the wars and the rumors of war, we are not captured in the sensational elements of that. We are grieving for the evidence of sin and we're crying out for the return of the Lord to make it right. We're crying out for the day of the Lord. And that indeed will take place. And so therefore, you and I both receive the recognition, the grief over the devastation of sin, and also the joy of knowing that one day God will take care of it. Have you ever been with somebody who doesn't know Christ as Savior, and one of their hang-ups in understanding and coming to a saving knowledge of Christ is how could a just God allow sin to exist? How could a just God allow the effects of sin to exist on creation? Beloved, every time I engage in those kinds of conversations, I remind them that God is patient, Second Peter, but that God will deal with sin in its entirety. Isaiah 13, Zephaniah 1. God will deal with sin in its entirety. And this, we recognize then, that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. It's a day of judgment. These two passages confirm that there will be a day when the wrath of God will be poured out on the earth and that this day is called the day of the Lord. That this day of wrath and destruction is called the day of the Lord. This is a yet future day even for us, but one not only testified by the prophets of the Old Testament, but also spoken of by Peter in 2 Peter, which we read a few moments ago, by Paul, which we have been studying, and even of Christ in Matthew chapter 24, where he speaks of the second half of the tribulation, in the great tribulation. Paul, in his second letter to the Thessalonians, will reveal that this day hasn't happened yet. 
So as Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, he corrects any poor theology we may have as saying this happened before this. Because Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, this has not happened. Don't let anybody deceive you. This has not happened as of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And actually 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 2. This description of the day of not only judgment and wrath designed for the ultimate judgment of sin, but is also designed as the time where the wrath of God ends. There's more to come. So the day of the Lord is not just the day of judgment, which we see here, the day of the wrath of God being poured out, not the end times judgment that's to come, but the wrath to be poured out. This is the tribulational period. It's not just the tribulational period. There's another part of it as well. Let's continue on. The day of the Lord, as we, in fact, it is important now that we go back to 2 Thessalonians. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. Not only be quickly shaken, this is 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 and 3. Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by the Spirit or the spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed and the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he can take his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So Paul gives us the precursor of what is the day of the Lord. When does it commence? And has this event happened? Has this individual stood forth and done what Paul said he's going to do? We'll study this later. We don't have time this morning, but we will in the days to come, Lord willing. Paul is saying that this, this man of lawlessness is going to come. But we also recognize, verse 6 says, or verse 5, says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told these things, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed for this time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then as we recognize there's going to be a delusion, there's going to be all of these things. Those are all of the events that take place of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But that is not all that there is in the day of the Lord. Paul is describing this day, saying it has not come until this happens. And we would say it hasn't happened. If you take it literally, it hasn't happened. These events have not yet unfolded. But the Old Testament also tells us of a second half of this day. There's another portion of this day. It's more than just the tribulational period. Go back to Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3. And as we're turning to Zephaniah chapter 3, we want to understand that there is significance and importance here to Zephaniah chapter 3. And we see that the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, this is down in verse 6, it says that you are to walk in my ways, keep charge of my house. And there's promises that are made. Verse 10 says, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The Lord is preparing to fulfill the promises that were made to Joseph and to Joshua as he is speaking to these things. We also recognize then, if we turn over to Zechariah, excuse me, I'm in the wrong... Wrong book already. Zephaniah chapter 3. Uh, I was looking in Zephani- Zechariah chapter 3. Uh, Zephaniah chapter 3. Uh, we see verses 14 and 15 here. The scripture says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you, and he has cleared away the, your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, the Mighty One, who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Combined with the promises of Zechariah chapter 3, we see in Zephaniah chapter 3, there is this recognition that the Lord will be with His people on this great day of the Lord. So the great day of the Lord is 
not just the tribulational period. It is that time. But it is also the time that follows. As we move into Revelation chapter 20 and other places, we recognize that this will be the day of the kingdom. This is the coming kingdom we sang about a few moments ago. This is what Jeremiah promised. That would take, The Lord spoke through Jeremiah, promising Jeremiah that there will be the law of God written on the hearts of people. Ezekiel, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Obadiah, Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of these all reveal details of this time of the day of the Lord. This time of the kingdom. The day of the Lord is viewed as a day of wrath and judgment in the Old Testament and in the New. And it is also revealed to be a day of deliverance and blessing in the Old and in the New. And so what should you and I do about it? What should you and I do about it? I'm going to catch up here. We must recognize that there are warnings that have been issued. There are warnings that have been issued. We should expect the unexpected. Turn back to Second or First Thessalonians. We should expect the unexpected. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse three. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. We should expect the unexpected. As we've already studied, the day of the Lord is a major theme, not just in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, but through the prophets and into the book of Revelation. It's a significant portion of 1 Corinthians. We recognize that it's a major theme in Scripture. Yet the arrival of this day is an as-of-yet unrevealed mystery. When will it happen? Anytime. That's the answer. You and I want to know the exact time, the moment, the day. At least give me the week. <laughs> at least tell me, maybe the year even. But Scripture does not do that. Scripture says that it is not for us to know the times or the seasons. That's the Father's to know. But we have been warned that it will be unexpected. And we are to expect it. Since it is an unrevealed mystery to you and I, it is unbiblical and sensationalizing a day and a time. Let us not be unbiblical to sensationalize the moment, to try to, try to use that to hasten the coming of the Lord. We may see signs and evidences that we say, wow, the coming of the Lord is very, very near, and that is the biblical response and let us live there because if you believe that it is very very near you will be a different person than if you believe it's going to be next year or next week frankly you will be one who pursues holiness you'll be one who will follow after your neighbors hoping that they will listen as you proclaim the gospel of jesus christ not belligerently not arrogantly but as one pleading for them to come to know him we do not know the times and the seasons. Paul did not know the times and the seasons. Peter did not know, and Jesus would not say. So you better not be saying. However, we who know Christ as Savior should not be taken off guard. We should not be surprised when the unexpected happens. We also must recognize that the world rejects Christ. Despite the warnings, as we see here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3, despite the warnings, there will be an arrogant humanity that says, oh, we have achieved peace and security. Yet, in doing so, they themselves are rejecting Christ. The judgment awaits them as described to be as certain as labor pains for a pregnant woman. They will come. You don't get to define when, but they will come. 
In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the perceived delay of the coming day of the Lord is because the Lord is patient, waiting for the repentance of all of those who will believe. So instead of being frustrated about the Lord's delay, let us be those who live in anticipation and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ that the last one may come to know Christ as Savior before the return of Christ. We also recognize, and we're going to go ahead and turn over to 2 Peter now. Turning over to 2 Peter, we will conclude here. We're also aware of Peter's warnings. Paul has given to us an example of a couple of those warnings that Christ will come unexpectedly, that the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly, that the world is going to reject Christ. Peter reminds us in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 3 in the book of 2 Peter, he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and when the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. I got a kick out of a few moments ago when Mike was reading to you the list of reasons that the earth may end, and he read the first two, and there was kind of no, no answer. Global warming didn't receive any kind of response. When he got to, to robots, there started to be a little bit of a laugh and then a nervous laugh. Did you catch that? It's like, you know what? We could actually suffer that one. <laughs> Not that the world will end that way, but imagine the world captured by AI. That is a frightening thing, is it not? And I heard it in your nervous laughter. What is fascinating to me is we know the way that this world will end. We know it. And we know that it will be global warming on a scale that the environmentalists have no idea. But it will not be gradual. It will be sudden. And it will be complete. Peter speaks of the day of the Lord. By the way, Paul and John speak of the day of the Lord as well. Peter's warning helps us to prepare the ground for next week. Paul's headed to where Peter is already. Peter speaks of the end of the second period of time, the end of the kingdom. The heavens and the earth will pass away. Peter is speaking of this great day of the Lord. Remember, he is We've already known that there's a period of judgment to come that is to follow immediately on the heels of the rapture. Then there is a kingdom, and we know from Revelation that that is a thousand-year kingdom. At the end of that thousand-year kingdom, this earth will be melted with an intense heat. That's what Peter says. And Peter asks this question. At the end of the kingdom, because of what's going to take place, and because of the immediacy of the coming of the day of the Lord, which starts with the tribulation. What sort of people should you be? Isn't that a probing question? What sort of people should you be? These things are going to happen. Are you to be Paul Revere? Peter gives us the answer. He says this, verse 11, Since all these things are, are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? Does end times theology matter? It mattered to Peter. It mattered significantly to Peter. So the answer would be a resounding yes. End times theology matters, and it matters significantly. We are often told that end times theology is unhelpful and it is divisive. It's unhelpful to unity, and it's divisive in theology. And I would say that's only because you've allowed your theology to step in front of the pages of Scripture. When we let Scripture speak for itself, we certainly will find things that we cannot wrap our minds around. We do not know the times and the seasons. And there are elements that are difficult to understand. But by allowing the Word of God to form our theology instead of our theology forming, around the, forming the Word of God, we will be those who anticipate a rapture. 
We will be those who anticipate the coming of Christ to meet us in the air. And we will be those who anticipate the coming day of the Lord immediately on its heels. So what sort of people should we be? Let us be those who are ready. That when the voice of the archangel cries out and the sound of the trumpet blast blows, that you are already ready to meet your Savior. That's what sort of people you should be. You say, but it's been all of these years. Yes, it has. Times and the seasons are not for us to know. But you can be assured that God will finish what he started. And it will come to fruition. Those who anticipate the rapture and the coming day of the Lord that will begin with the tribulation and end with the literal kingdom of God will respond appropriately. We will live holy lives. We will live lives of godliness. And we will be waiting for and hastening the coming day of our great God. That is the only appropriate response. We should be people who live expectantly righteous lives because Christ's future return is future history. It's already guaranteed. Let us be those who live with that kind of anticipation. Let's close this portion of our service in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as our music teams come, we continue to sing of these events that are to come in the future. We are grateful that you will do what you have said you will do. We praise you for the promise that you will return for your church. Lord, the day of the Lord is a day of great fear and trepidation, trembling even. There's a lot of discussion, theological scholars on each side of the issues. But we praise you that your word does speak plainly to these matters. And while there are things that we do not understand, we pray that your spirit would lend us the necessary understanding to understand what we can, to give us that wisdom and insight, but that's in those matters that are not for us to know. I pray that your Spirit would also give us patience to wait with anticipation. It's challenging for us, as we know the old saying that a watch pot never boils. It feels that way as we await for the rapture. It feels as if it will never come, but we pray that we will be ready when it does and that we will be rejoicing even in the moments that lead up to it, exalting you and praising you together. Lord, we do pray that this day would be very, very soon. That you would come for your church to take us to be with you forever and eternity and that you will met out the judgment of wickedness and sin and fulfill the promises that you have promised to the people of Israel but Lord, as we wait for those, I pray that we would be those who live with expectancies, waiting for Christ to return, and therefore sharing the gospel with those that we meet, living holy, chaste lives before you, knowing that any moment we could be with you in eternity. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for these things. Cause us to now respond and worship as we lift our voices together in praise. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.